Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our next speaker is an author, coach, and chief creative officer of the DeSauer Group. Aside from his real estate investments, he also owns a lending and marketing company, property management, and brokerage firm. Here to talk about how to find winning deals and the key metrics that you have to look for when investing, let's welcome John DeSauer. All right. Today we have John DeSauer with us. He is managing broker and owner of the Anton Agency, chief creative officer of the DeSauer Group, CEO of Oppenheimer Realty Capital, and author of books, Alchemy of Wealth, Real Estate H2O, and Apartment Confidential. John, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. If you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself and you know, kind of a quick rundown of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, guys, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And you know, from a background standpoint, I grew up in Chicago and I was part of a household where my father passed when I was rather young. So I had a single parent household. I have two brothers, one sister. In Chicago, we always grew up in apartments. And what's interesting is I kind of learned that business from the inside looking out. And as I got through college and graduated and into the corporate world, I realized pretty quickly that in my youth, I saw someone come to the apartment and knock on the door once a month to collect the rent check. But I saw my mom leave for her nine to five, which was really a nine to nine pretty much every day. And so as I got out in the corporate world, I kind of realized, hey, this isn't really something that what it's all cracked up to be, right? We were, I was kind of felt misled at that point. And I realized that, hey, I really liked the system that this rent guy had in place. He'd come once a month, collect a check. I wouldn't see him for 30 days. He'd come back, collect a check. But my mom went to her nine to nine pretty much every day. And I realized that too. So the only purpose of the going to the nine to nine was to cut the most important check of the month. And that was the rent check. When I made the decision to leave the corporate world over two decades ago, I'm aging myself. I said, you know, I want to be the rent guy. And that's kind of what propelled me to get involved in real estate investing and in particular multifamily. Well, that's really exciting. So how did you get started? Like, I know you left the corporate world, but what was that beginning like? So I was in going downtown Chicago every day, the commute, you know, I'd spend an hour or sometimes an hour and a half or more in my car in the commute. And then I'd go sit in somewhat of a cubicle till I got more into my sales role. And I remember when I left that position, I was in the environmental field and got into sales with that. And I remember when I went in to tell my boss at the time, his name was Russ, that I was leaving, I was going to be doing something completely different. You know, his comeback to me was, well, John, are you sure you want to leave now? I mean, we're going to have our sales meeting this year in Florida. And for a guy in Chicago in January, let's say, you know, Florida sounds awfully appealing. 
But it was just, I felt like, oh my gosh, that's what you're coming back with me at, that our sales meetings in Florida. I mean, my whole career is ahead of me, my whole life. And so I realized pretty quickly that it was, you know, a pretty dog eat dog world where they didn't really care about the individual as much. And that really hasn't changed over the last 25 years since I left the corporate world. But that's what I did. I remember walking out of that office after I had that meeting and I had a feeling of being both scared to death and relieved. I can't explain how that felt, but it was a combination of both of those. And I just started to dive right into real estate investing at that point and building my other businesses. And it was the best move I could have made at that time. Well, that is awesome. So I think today we're going to talk about how to find winning deals. You want to describe to us, like, how did you find that first deal? Like, how did you get into it? Yeah, today is very much different than that time period 25 years ago. I've lived and experienced these cycles that we've gone through. And real estate is a cycle. There's no doubt about it. We're in one changing right now. But that first deal was a deal that I looked at. I didn't pay attention to the markets. I didn't pay attention to interest rates or the 10-year treasury or you know, supply and demand and things like that. I was too naive. But I did pay attention to the idea that I wanted a rental unit at least. And I bought a duplex. The price was around $140,000 for this duplex. This was 25 years ago. And what's interesting about that is I got bank financing on it at 80%. I got the seller who was a woman in her 80s to give me seller financing at 20%. So I had the deal 100% financed. And at the time when I went to closing, I not only got the keys to the property, but the way the credits worked out on the closing statement, I actually got a check for around $1,600 as I remember it. And I thought, I am going to be unstoppable. I go to closing, I get a check and I get keys. Who would not want to do this business, right? <laughs> right. And I realized pretty early on also that that was a challenge or an issue for me because I was over leveraged on the deal. I quickly went through that $1,600 because the tenant, the person I bought it from, the woman in her 80s moved out of the top unit. And there was a guy in the bottom unit that was paying $350 in a $700 market at that time. So you know, just because you can buy things with no money down doesn't mean you should. And that was one of the first lessons that I learned. I was able to, because I started small, recover and change that trajectory of that rental property. It was a duplex, like I said, and all is good there. But I learned some things off that. I learned the importance of not being over leveraged, number one. Number two, I also learned why getting into this and starting small might be more important than jumping in and trying to buy the biggest property that you can, because you can mistake small and recover. And you may not be able to do that with a larger property. Yeah, John, I have a pretty similar story with my first deal. It wasn't the greatest success. It was actually my college house. And I bought that in 2006. And then I just sold it last November and was able to 1031 exchange it. But I mean, honestly, that property appreciated over one of the times that real estate was supposed to appreciate the most. I bought it for 170 and then I sold it for, I think, 205. And nice. <laughs> 15 years of appreciation. But it was the first deal. It got my foot in the door. And I actually 1031 exchanged that into a fiveplex, which 
was good. So how did that first deal turn out? Do you still own it? I don't. I actually sold it. You know, I'm a believer that, you know, I speak across the country and I go to different investor events and there's a couple of rules of thought. You know, one is, you know, buy and hold and never sell. And another one is buy and sell and, you know, work the undulations of the market and things like that. I tend to fall more and lean more on that side. Sometimes we can take an investment and bring it to its highest maximum value, both from a cash flow perspective and a equity perspective. And you're just kind of not utilizing that equity like you should. Maybe you can take that equity, put it into another investment and have it perform better. Or maybe there's a different exit strategy you can do that will enable you to buy more multifamily units to give you better cash flow. So I think like that. I'm always looking at how the market's changing with interest rates, supply and demand, all of those things, and the lending environment, and really trying to say, what can I do that is going to allow me to take my equity and put it into a best performing asset long term? And do I have any assets now that have reached the end or maximum amount of their production life with regard to cash flow and equity. I think you're seeing that today in 2022, by the way, where properties are really high valuated in the marketplace. And I think that is changing somewhat now as interest rates, the 10-year treasury, some of these uh, things are coming into play. Yeah, but it's um, a crazy time right now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as interest rates go up, okay. people's buying power definitely goes down. So it's gonna be- AJ, do you wanna share kind of our thought like, we're more in the buy and hold camp. Like it's too much work to buy and sell all the time. But AJ, do you want to jump into? Yeah. I mean, that sort of model is great. Like you are capitalizing, you're taking that equity and you are rolling it into the next deal. Preferably get some cash to, you know, do a remodel and add value. Like our model has always been adding value. We also really like to have bank money. I mean, we always feel like we're looking at something even today and it's like, can we make a better interest rate than what we can pull out as a cash out on a refinance? And we absolutely can. We know we can. So, yeah. you know, we're right now looking at this and we're like, okay, let's go for the maximum cash out just because we know that we can put that money to work in another project and another deal and do much better. And that's how we've grown a ton. We have not sold a lot. We yeah, are, we are a buy and hold. Yeah, absolutely, Chris, we can jump in. John, so I completely agree with you. There's that first phase of the investment where you're doing your value add and forcing the appreciation. And, you know, on the buy, you find a great deal where there's some margin or some room where you can make that improvement. And once you've made that improvement, like that massive growth or massive appreciation where you're doing all those changes, you, you can't replicate that. You've already done the value add. Now it's just going to appreciate at the market level. And if you can take your equity out and place it into new projects where you can do that value add and force that appreciation, that is going to like give all of your equity rocket fuel. And it's a great strategy. It's a lot of work buying and selling that many properties and finding them. And so- yeah, it's Let's dive back into our main topic, which is finding that winning deal. Yeah. So, I mean, do, maybe do you want to describe what you're looking at today and how you're finding those deals? Yeah. So, first of all, if you are going to people like myself, like retail 
commercial or even residential, if that's your focus, brokerages to find real estate, you're going to lose right now. It's just overpriced. There's no other way I can say it. Some people don't like me to say, use that word overpriced, but it is. The simple fact that we have so much money out in the marketplace and the availability for money for investors to go buy stuff has driven up the market value of these assets. And people that sell those market values are selling those at retail and above. So number one, the best way to find an asset is to find an asset that is not listed by a guy like myself. I'm not trying to bash my people as brokers and agents. But if you can find an, an owner operated that wants to sell or you can influence them in a positive way to sell, I think you're going to have a lot better price point to go after. So that's number one. Number two, you have to find deals that are priced at retail or below that have an upside that you can drive that net operating income by raising the rents. That's why I do love mom and pop operations because they're really not good at driving rents to market rent. And that's where you're going to have the most gain. That's really, really important in a market that we're going into now in which we have a rising interest rate environment. When that rising interest rate environment happens, your cash return on investment typically drops if you're in an adjustable rate mortgage or a short-term mortgage, or maybe you're not in you know, something other than a 30-year fixed or more of a you know, maybe even a 15 year fixed. So that's something that I look at. And I also look at the ability. The third thing is the ability of that tenant base that's currently there or what you're going to put in that can withstand this storm. Because it's when we talk about interest rates for the real estate investor, it's not just for the owner that's got to think about it. It's for their tenant base. Their credit card rates are going up. They're going to have higher payments. Their car note payments are going to change when they finance things. So it's the ability of that tenant to be able to pay that maximum amount in rent. And I look at all those things, but if you can find a deal in which you buy from a mom and pop, not retail, not through a guy like myself, has an upside, raising rents is one, and you have a tenant base that can withstand that storm, financial storm that I feel like we're just beginning here. I think that's where you find the good deals. Nice. So you know, the last deal that you looked at, like, how did you find it? Like, what sort of actions are you taking to find those like off market deals and those mom and pops where you get to raise the rents? Yeah. So what I'll do is we have a system here where I market to people that this is one of the areas where if they miss their first or their tax payment, I am marketing them immediately, typically on commercial lending the principal interest is paid, but the taxes and insurance are left to the investor. On the residential side of the world, it's very common for that principal interest, taxes and insurance to be jumbled together. So when I see that tax payment missed, in most states, the taxes are paid twice a year. When I see that tax payment missed, that is giving me an initial indication that they may be having a financial challenge there. I'm on them immediately for that. So that's one way that I do that. A second way that I do that is I'm simply, when someone has a for rent sign in the yard or in a window, and this is particularly for 24 units and less, I'm calling them specifically. They're basically advertising that they have a unit for rent. 
professional third-party management companies, asset management companies like ourselves, we don't put a for rent sign in the yard typically. We are doing that in other ways. So when I see that sign, that's a second indication to me that number one, I can get directly with the owner of the building. Number two, it's giving me their contact information and basically saying, hey, call me. I'm interested in hearing from somebody that wants to rent here. Well, possibly they could be interested if I can influence them in a positive way to possibly sell that building. And so I use those two a lot, especially on the smaller side of 24 units and less. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Dude, I'm just curious. So we run a management company as well. When you like are searching for those people, do you also offer to take over management services for them? So that yes. in the future when they're ready to sell, then you already have their contact info and you're in front of them once a month, giving them a statement and everything. Yeah, it's real interesting. This is probably 20 plus years ago. I developed this script for calling those for rent signs. And you'd be surprised at what people tell you when you call there. And they'll tell you all the issues with the building. They'll tell you why they hate owning the building. They'll tell you their management challenges, be it themselves or even with a third party if they had one. So it does open up other avenues for you if you do have a management company per se to market to them and say, listen, I, you know, I'm calling about the unit. We may have a tenant that we want to place in there. But also we have an asset management company. We manage buildings just like yours in that particular market. That would be a great way for do a little biz dev. And so you might be accomplishing a couple things with one stone there. I love that. Just asking what's wrong with the property and then they tell you their whole life story. Just being that listening ear can be really, really effective. I've actually bought more buildings by having general conversations using that. It goes something like this, you know, hey, I've got, I'm associated with a company that buys buildings just like yours. If you're ever interested in selling, let me know. And, and somehow the story goes, well, if I were to sell, I'd have to get, you know, 400000 for the building. You can do really quick math to find out if that's a deal or not. If you know the cap rate of the market, if it's five and over and you know, you know, the NOI of the property, you can kind of think about what that is if you know the rents. So, but it's a great strategy and you'd be surprised at what they tell you when you call those numbers. <laughs> so do you want to walk us through, you know, maybe one of those that you've actually done and just kind of the highs and the lows of it? I feel like we might get a lot of value out of that. Yeah. So the 10 unit comes to mind that we purchased using that same strategy. And when I called that number, it was a husband and wife here in Northwest Indiana that owned the building. The husband was a doctor. The wife didn't work. All she did was, you know, do the quote unquote management. And so in calling that for rent sign, the rents on the unit were $750 per unit times 10 means 7,500 
dollars a month potentially coming in in income. So let's just estimate here how that would work out. When I'm talking to them, again, they're telling me about the unit, but they're also, you know, kind of giving me hints of why they are tired of management, especially the mom and pops. So if I go ahead and just do the math here real quickly on that building, again, I'm just using really brief numbers here, but $7,500 a month, if I take that and annualize that, that's $90,000 for the year. Now, I really make it a habit to understand class A, B, and C and how those properties operate from an expense to income ratio. So let's just assume that the expense to income ratio on that building is 50%. That would tell me that 45,000, that includes vacancy factor, 45,000 is my net operating income. And for the lack of a better term, let's use the 10% cap rate. This is a 10 unit building, so it would use the income approach. So at a 10% cap rate, $45,000 NOI, that would tell us that that building is worth $450,000. So when I'm on a call with the doctor or the wife, I'm going through a conversation with them and I use that same line, hey, I'm associated with a company that buys buildings just like yours. If you'd ever be interested in selling, you know, we're your people. We can help you with that. And so inevitably, they would say something like this. Well, if I were to sell, you know, I'd need to get 375000 for that building. You know, we've had it for a while, but I need to get that. They don't necessarily know the market value, the market cap rate, or they don't know the exercise that I just went through in my mind, knowing that this thing is probably worth four fifty. They went three seventy five. So immediately, I'm going to put those wheels in motion to make that happen. That was a way that we actually purchased that building. I'll never forget because at closing, the wife came to the closing with a coffee can. I don't know. You guys might not remember the big coffee cans. Maybe you do. I don't know. That like Maxwell House. Folgers, yeah, the Folgers <laughs> corn full of, yeah. and they were full of keys. They were full of keys. This is a 10 unit building. There's about 150 keys in there. Like, what do you need all these keys? Well, as this building sold throughout the years, it was built in the 50s. They just kept adding different keys to this, and it was a nightmare. So, we typically master key our properties when we go through there and take over ownership. But she was excited about that, getting rid of that Folgers can of keys. She was also, Sad though, because she loved, it did have a washer and dryer facility in the basement. She loved going there on the weekends and pulling the covers <laughs> out of that machine. So that's typically how we do those smaller deals. I guess the lesson there is be proactive and call those for rent signs, but also be proactive if you're going to use the property tax strategy I talked about earlier. And don't be afraid to call these folks because you never know what type of financial challenges they're facing, and you never know why somebody would possibly want to sell. This, in a sense, is what my commercial agents do here in our office when they want to get listings. They're doing the same thing. So I'm giving your listeners the same advice that I would tell you know, a new commercial agent coming in and how to approach that market. Once you get a hold of them, it's really about like developing that relationship with them, right? Like getting them talking about what's wrong with it. And like, I mean, from what I've heard, those kind of sales tactics is like, you know, like Chris said, just be a really good listener and get them talking as much as possible. Is that kind of what you guys do too? 
Yeah, it's interesting because we can call differently because we're trying to place a lot of tenants as well. Mm -hmm. So at first when I called, when we didn't have the asset management company, I was calling and saying, you know, that I was interested in looking at the place for rent when in reality, I really wasn't. That was probably the wrong thing to do, you know, years ago. But now because we have this, we look to place tenants all the time. And I come right out full disclosure and say, look, I'm calling on behalf of one of our clients. They're looking for a place to rent. We might be able to place them in your unit. We've already run credit on them. They're very qualified financially. And as that conversation goes along, they will, again, tell us why they don't like to manage, why, you know, all the issues with the building, that they wouldn't tell a prospective, someone calling to actually rent. I'm getting more information because I'm a professional in the industry. And then it'll lead down the line for us, like we said earlier, to either buy the property as an investor in our investor company or even have a management opportunity there as a professional third party in there. But trust and rapport is really, really important. And once you tell them that, once you're transparent, you tell them the reason for your call and why you're calling and how you can help them, and you have that trust and rapport built at least a little bit at that point, you're typically in good shape. Nice. So um, with that first 10 unit deal, how many properties had you called on? And I guess, what was your success ratio to find that one? Man, you have to call on a lot. And I think there's this rule that you got to call on 100 to get 10 to close on two or whatever that is. I haven't found that. I found that percentage to be a lot better than what that is. If you just work your local market, and I think that a good definition of a local market for a lot of people starting out is 100,000 people and less. Like here in Chicago, the Chicago metro area, that could be a neighborhood. 100,000 people, not a city or town. In others, it could be a city or town. But I try to work with that 100,000 people and less. And then I understand everything that's going on in that market. So I understand the market rents. I understand the market cap rate that's going on. I know the transactions that have sold. But I'm also understanding where the person can get on public transportation to get to their job or to get to downtown or to go to a sporting event per se. Once I have that down, Then I can start to think, okay, how many apartment buildings are in my market? What's my method to find those? Is it software? Is it list source? Is it driving neighborhoods? And then I'll put that into my calendar as action items so that I start to get in more data. At that point, it's just a script. So to get back to your original question, Chris, I think it would be Probably if you can get out and call 25 properties, you're probably going to have a handful somewhere between five and 10 that you're actually going to be able to have conversations with at the least if you're doing this right. And if you're having conversations with them, I think that you're probably talking about two to five that you can work some angle with that, especially today when the market's so high, you know, people are thinking about should I sell? I don't want to deal with a real estate agent. I don't want my tenants to know I'm selling. All this stuff comes up. But if you can do that on a discrete call where you're helping them out providing service, I think that goes a lot better. When you're talking to these people and having these conversations, like I'm sure it's not just one conversation. Like at the end of the first one, they're like, hey, I'm ready to sell. Like, let's do this. Like kind of tell us like how that conversation evolves and like how that kind of relationship develops. 
And like, I mean, sure, there's some that are quicker than others and there's some that are longer than others, but like maybe just to kind of give a general idea to our audience of like, how long does it take? Like, what does it look like? Yeah. So the biggest three things that you can ask are what, how, and why. For instance, the what is, you know, what's the situation here with this owner in this building? And you can start asking questions in that to really understand what the problem is. You know, how did the problem develop? The problem probably developed by poor property management. They have an empty unit because they had to evict the tenant. And so they're behind financially. Well, that all started because they have poor property management habits. They didn't screen them financially. They certainly didn't run credit. So they ran into this problem. And so I go through this thing where it's situation, problem. What does that imply? Both bad and good. And then finally, what the need is there. Is there a need? The solution or need is always what I can bring them, either as a real estate investor or as a brokerage property asset management firm. And so when I'm asking those questions of what, I get that scenario. When I'm asking those questions of how that happened, I'm getting those scenario. And then finally, why? You know, the why of what they want to do. You know, why would you keep punishing yourself by doing the same thing over and over and bringing in a tenant using your same screening techniques? Why don't you bring in a licensed professional third-party management company where we do this you know, hundreds of times a month. And we've got the systems in place and experience to really deliver good quality management where you can maximize your income that you're bringing in further driving the value of the building. Or if I'm looking at it to buy as an investor, I just go a different route with that. I use the same questioning, but then I might introduce that statement of, hey, you know, we work and we're associated with a company that buys buildings just like yours. A question for you, given all of the challenges that you just gave me on this phone call, would you ever be interested in selling? It may be a great time to sell. The market's at an all-time high. Of course, we look at investments from a return standpoint, but have you ever thought about that? And just let the conversation go like that. You'd be surprised at what you hear from investors. A lot of times in that scenario, they're saying, well, do I have to use a real estate agent if I sell to you? And you know, my answer is, well, you don't have to. You could if you want to. But we'd like to make the process as easy as possible. Full disclosure, we are a licensed brokerage. We have to tell you that not only verbally, but more importantly in writing. But we'd like to make the process as simple as possible for you, where we can give you the maximum amount that we could offer, yet giving us an opportunity for return and giving your situation of maybe poor performance, not from any fault of your own. It's just you have a lot of things going on in your life and you weren't able to give this the attention it needed. We can help you with that. We can help you exit out of that issue. Awesome. Well, that sounds really good. I think we're running on time now. And so we're going to hop to our last four questions. I'm going to start it off with what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? The 25-year-old self I would give is the thing that most people have heard a lot of times in your life, and that's you become the five people you hang out with. I think Jim Rohn said that originally, but you become them with their actions. You become them with their finances, their health habits, for instance, and other things. And you don't realize that at 25. I'm 54 now. I have to think how old I was, but I certainly realize that now. I try to instill that in my kids. 
try to instill that with everybody that I speak with. But that would be the advice that I would give that would probably make the biggest impact if for people that have would put that in play. It certainly would have with me at 25. Awesome. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor and what sparked you to do that? So I had a car detailing shop and I went in with a buddy of mine that was a partner. And even though I have a business degree, we really were raw thinking on this. And one of the things I can remember specifically is we just had someone come in and pay for their car that was beautifully detailed and ready to go. It looked like it was off the showroom floor. He paid us in cash. I go and run an errand and my partner's back and he's got a full spread of food in the office, like crazy food and all kinds of stuff. I'm like, what is going on? And he took the money that was in the cash register basically and made a spread and had a party. Let's just call it a party. And I realized that you know, I knew at that point, you just can't take money out of the register and do whatever you want with it. You have to be responsible financially for it. I say we, because that was partly my fault for letting that happen, but we weren't. It was a mistake. That business didn't do so well long-term, but that was my first junction of being an entrepreneur. But I love the entrepreneur side of the world, but not everybody may love it as much as you do. And not everybody has the knowledge or skill set. That's why surrounding yourself with people that have that skill set and are professionals and are on the same mission is really, really important. I like that. That's great. Next question is, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to get a basketball scholarship out of high school and I went to Iowa to play basketball. And I say that because in my college years, I had athletics experience and then I had academic experience. And my academics, as I look back on it now, were so, that's really where I learned to learn and learn how to learn and learn the value of learning In high school, I didn't have that. I did really well on my ACT. My grades were good, but they weren't fantastic because I didn't really think about how to, I should learn and the importance of learning. Today, I know it's so important. I'm an avid reader and things like, you know, understanding the importance of reading consistently books, not only in the genre of business, but other genres as well. Makes you a better, well-rounded person. I do have licensing with the brokerage and as a real estate licensed agent, I am, I guess, considered a professional. I think if you do, what is it? 10,000 hours of any work, you're considered a professional. So I think my training formally and informally has made me a well-rounded person, but there's no better learning environment than experience. So I also look at that as well. I might try to do a deal that I've never done before. Some of my biggest deals, you know, 350 units plus have been areas where I've said, wow, I've never done a deal this size. I'm just going to go for it and really kind of surround myself with good people and put myself in an avenue that I've never been before. And I think that's where you learn the most with the idea of risk tolerance and how to mitigate risk and things like that. So my formal an informal education was great. Experience is really the best teacher I found, but they all kind of go together to make you a better entrepreneur, investor, real estate professional. There is nothing really that I've ever learned from more than just 
taking action and, you know, learning from all the mistakes that I made. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just such a, yeah. it's so good. All right. And our last question is, what was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? My biggest mistake, I've got a lot of them. A lot of people don't like to talk like that. You know, we often highlight our successes, but I think it's in our mistakes that we really learn more because we focus on what we did wrong, whereas our successes, we don't really focus on what we did right. We're just counting money. And that's sometimes that's not a lesson. And so one of my biggest mistakes was a 48-unit building that I bought that had terrible management with it. And I had a few units under my belt at that point. I think I had maybe 250 units at that time under my belt. Adding 48 was not, didn't seem like a huge impact. I thought the building physically had good bones, but all I needed to do was bring in good management and I can straighten out the issues there. When I come into a property, I'm always trying to focus on driving that NOI and then working my exit strategy with that new equity. Well, the problem that I realized there was I underestimated how bad bad management can be for a building. When it gets stigmatized of bad management, there is a lot more effort that you need to put in from a marketing standpoint, from a physical repair standpoint, and from a respect standpoint of the tenant base, but also the community around there. And so my biggest mistake was that building, even though it was only a few million, well, a couple million dollars, not that that's not a lot of money, but it definitely was a mistake because I ended up losing money on that. And I ended up losing opportunity that I could have taken new equity to in other buildings. I learned from that. That was probably my biggest mistake. Wow. You know, everyone thinks if you buy a 48 unit building, you've made it. You can't lose, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so you can lose. Just like <laughs> Chris, just like I was in Austin, Texas, delivering a talk two weeks ago. In Austin, Texas, our people are saying, you know, the Austin market's always going to go up because there's more people moving into Austin than moving out of Austin. And I'm thinking to myself, that is the same thing they told me in 2006 in Phoenix, in Vegas, in some of these other markets. And look what happened there. And history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Okay. It doesn't exactly repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I never forgot that you can lose. You can lose with a 48 unit building. You can lose in a market like Austin, Texas, even though it's 2022. And we think that everything is going to go great. Just be aware that it's the market that dictates your success or failures in the actions you take within those market changes. Well, very interesting, John. Thank you. Yeah, John, just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. If our audience or listeners want to get a hold of you, what is the best way to search yeah. more or find more about you? Yeah, if you just go to johndessauer.com, you can find me there. It's a great way to you know find the other companies and I'm there for you if you need any help or support or whatever I can do to make your investing life better or easier. Just let me know. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you, got it. you rock, John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. 
If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.